Hello, everyone. I'm Esther Pan Sloan, Head of Partnerships, Policy and Communications at the United Nations Capital Development Fund. Welcome to Season 2 of Capital Musings, UNCDF's podcast, where we are focusing on fresh ideas and new innovations that serve our mandate to make finance work for the poor in the world's least developed countries. You can find our Capital Musings podcast on Apple, Spotify, or our website, www.uncdf.org. Today, we are very happy to be speaking with Carol Pepper, CEO and founder of Pepper International, a trusted advisor to family offices, and author of The Seven Pearls of Financial Wisdom, A Woman's Guide to Enjoying Wealth and Power. Carol, thanks for joining us today. Hi, Esther. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here with you. Please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What did you study? And what led you to the world of finance and family offices? I grew up in a town called Sudbury in the state of Massachusetts in the United States. It's a small, beautiful town about 20 miles west of Boston. My dad was the head of the Veterans of Foreign War, the BFW in the town, and my mom was a bookkeeper and accountant. My dad was an engineer for Raytheon for his entire career. And I was adopted by my parents, as was my brother. And we had a wonderful growing up there in Sudbury. I was very excited to become the town librarian after school. I started working at a young age. I always loved to work and make money. And we had an incredible public school system in town. That's the reason why my parents moved to that particular town. We didn't have a lot of money. We had a lot of love, but not a lot of money. And my parents always drilled into me the fact that education was the way to make your future better. And that getting an educational scholarship was the way to go, to move up and move out into the world. I was always very curious about the world. And my mother's family came from Italy, so we had a family of immigrants. My grandmother and grandfather were first generation coming over here. My mom was first generation American. They actually came through Ellis Island. And on my dad's side, Pepper, they were the wasps, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. And they had been here since the 1600s. I'm over here to make their fortune and ran clipper ships to China way back in the 1600s. An Italian immigrant married a Boston wasp and the rest was history. And they married and lived in that town their entire lives. They actually just passed away this year. So it was wonderful. I really enjoyed the town. I got to raise a horse in my backyard with my dad because it was a fairly rural area back in those days. Went to a wonderful public high school and had the opportunity to participate even in high school in the Model UN, which was fantastic and was an exchange student to Denmark. I won a scholarship to be an exchange student to Denmark at high school, which was an incredible experience. So even from a very young age, I think because of my mom's family and my old love of international things, I was very much focused on going to a bigger world outside of Sudbury, although I very much loved it. And I was very lucky to work hard and get a scholarship to go to Bryn Mawr College. In fact, half of my education was paid for by Bryn Mawr, by the alumna of Bryn Mawr. And I always tell people I am the product of philanthropy. The reason I'm sitting here talking to you today is because some people gave money to the college to support students who didn't have enough money to come there. And I'm very lucky. And I always appreciate the fact that other people helped me to start my career. Thank you for sharing that, Carol. And I'm so sorry to hear about your parents. That must have been a terrible loss. When you were in college, you studied philosophy which is very interesting. And then after that, were you a philosophy major? Yes, I was. In fact, um, Bryn Mawr had a bi-college community with Haverford College. So I studied philosophy primarily at Haverford College. They had an amazing program there. 
And then I studied Russian language at Bryn Mawr College. So I minored in Russian, again, very interested in the outside world. And I always wanted to read Dostoevsky in the original because I was always a big lover of language and literature and stories. And in fact, that love was actually inspired by my high school teacher who had created a private Russian literature library right in our high school and started this love of learning about other cultures at a very young age. That's fantastic. So after reading Dostoevsky in Russian and studying philosophy, how did you end up in finance? I mean, you were working at Solomon Brothers during the Wolf of Wall Street times. What was that like? And how did you go from the very philosophical intellectual study of language and philosophy to the rough and tumble world of finance? It's called student debt. <laughs> so basically, when I was a, a senior, you know, we had student debt back then too. And I realized that I was very grateful for my scholarship, but I also worked 40 hours a week and had a ton of student loans that I knew I was going to come out with a heavy debt level. So I wandered into the career development office and I said to them, what's the highest paying job out there? Because I have to pay off these debts as quickly as possible. And they said, Wall Street. And I said, what is that? And they said, bulge bracket firms. And I said, what is that? <laughs> and they explained to me what investment banks were. And it turned out again that our brother school, Haverford, had quite a few people who were doing the two-year financial analyst program at the investment banks on Wall Street. That was a big deal back in the 80s when I was graduating. And there was a, a woman who had been the only female analyst at Solomon Brothers, and who was also extremely influential and helped me to get started. So I got to interview at campus for these jobs. And I think the fact that I had worked while going to school, I wasn't able to just go to school. I had to work the whole time and I was used to working super hard. Attracted me to them because they knew I could handle the workload. In those days, it wasn't uncommon for us to start work at seven in the morning and be working all night, literally. This was before the age of Excel. So we would take calculators, HP 12C calculators, and calculate all these ratios of company performance numbers like prep PE and capital price to book, capital ratios, et cetera. But we had to do it by hand with a calculator. We did them on these enormous sheets of paper that were probably four feet long and three feet wide. And they were handed into something called the computer typing center. And we'd sit there on the couch all night while these women and men would be typing up these sheets. We'd get them back, proof them for errors. Once they were correct, we would have to go and cut and paste them on a Xerox machine to make them down to the size of a book. And this would happen all night long. And if you found an error, you had to start the whole thing all over again. So we actually became very good copy repair people because we had to do it in the middle of the night and these copiers were always breaking down. It was incredible. It was really like being G.I. Jane among the Marines. And it was like Wolf of Wall Street. I mean, there was guys doing cocaine in the bathroom. There were strippers on the floor of Solomon Brothers every single day. Every time I picked up my telephone, let's say 90% of the time, some guy was sending me a sex line. If I had to go to the trading floor, people, you know, the throwing the phones at your head like it was a projectile missile. It was crazy. Watch that movie if you really want to know what it was like to have sexual harassment in the 80s. But my attitude was I was really lucky to be there. Here I was, a little girl from a small town, and I just was going to be tougher than the guys, and I was going to make it through. And so I learned to swear better than them and be tougher than them and work with them. And I got through that two-year program and actually made some tremendous relationships and had some fantastic mentors, even though it was a tough environment for sure. And I'm very glad that young people today don't have it quite as bad as we did back then. I feel like that's a story out of legend, like the paper coming out, the calculators. When I started in the foreign service, one of my ambassadors said, they call this a cable. When you write a brief to the government, it's called a cable because they used to send it by telex. 
and it was carried by cables under the ground. Just amazing how technology has moved along. So that began your finance career. Please tell us about the progress of your career from when you left that to your training program at Solomon Brothers to starting your own firm, Pepper well, International. Sure. Well, I'll tell you what, again, two years were coming to an end and they were helping us as the agreement was to write great recommendations so we could get into a good business school because it was the path in those days was you would work for two years, get a business school degree from hopefully a very good school, and then come back to finance or go on to whatever other part of your career you chose to pursue. So in my case, they were also at the same time, some of the firms were recruiting at the investment banks to find these young people who had had such extensive investment banking backgrounds. And that happened to me. So I was hired by JP Morgan and I negotiated for them to pay for me to go to Columbia Business School. And again, having started to escape a very heavy debt burden, I thought, what the heck, if I could get them to pay for Columbia, which is a fantastic school, then I'll be in good shape. So I took the job at JP Morgan, starting in the mergers and acquisitions department. But going to school, of course, is very intensive. And so is the work of M&A. So I switched and went into the private bank, taking care of people that were starting their careers back in those days. People who are now legendary hedge fund traders, legendary heads of movie studios, and all sorts of successful, incredible human beings who were just starting out in the 80s. And I became their banker. So that's how I moved from mergers and acquisitions in corporate to really mergers and acquisitions and debt financings for privately owned companies, for families that were so big, they were like a corporation, but they were private. Because back in the 80s, this was now 1987, there were no private banks and family office industry like we have it today. It just didn't exist. There were trust bankers who often had a high school degree and moved up through a trust department. And then there were these hotshot investment bankers, but very little for the privately owned company because everybody in those days was certainly, like they are again today, focused on going public and the IPO markets. So if you had a privately owned company, there were not a lot of sophisticated financial services for you back then. And so I carved a niche for myself doing that. You know, another thing that was interesting, I was always very interested in social justice. While I was at Columbia, I was going full-time in the summer and part-time in the spring and fall in the evenings. But Columbia was fairly dangerous at that time up there. I saw a person stabbed on the street in front of me at 110th and Morningside at about 12 noon. So I was very concerned because there were no locks on the door, no place you had to show an ID to get into the building. And literally, we had very scary looking people roaming, who clearly were not students. I don't know if they were homeless or they're mentally ill, roaming the halls of Columbia University while we were at school. And there were a lot of women studying there late at night. I was very worried about physical safety of these people who weren't really supposed to be in the building. So I went and spoke to security. Nothing happened the first year. I tried the second year again, raising my concern level. Nothing happened. The third year, I was taking a business law class and it just so happened that the president of the student body was in class with me. And the teacher was this fantastic law professor who was teaching us business law. And while he was lecturing, a guy came in and started going through his wastebasket looking for empty bottles in the middle of class. And at that point, I turned to the student body president. And I said, we have to do something. This could turn into a very unsafe situation. Now, we have a contract with the school for safety. This is not safe to have these people who are students or faculty in the building with us. And so we agreed to sue Columbia University to get them to provide some basic security at the doors for the students, particularly the female students. And we didn't have to sue them. The minute we had the law professor and the student body president with us, magically, they put a student at the front checking IDs with a radio camera to call security and the problem was solved. 
But sometimes one person can really make a difference for an institution. And I think that's very important for us all to remember. You never know what's one little thing you can do or speak up about that can actually help a lot of people. That's so interesting, Carol. And I feel like this has come up a lot in my conversations lately where people are daunted by all the challenges facing the world. And when you talk to people who have affected change, usually they'll say something like, I saw a problem and I went to fix it. Whatever it is, right? What Tari Mangai was saying, there were not trees in Kenya. So I started planting trees and now there are millions of trees being planted. So it really is oftentimes something as simple as I saw a problem. Other people are walking past that problem, but I thought of a way to fix it. So it's a great example for all of us. So you started this business of family offices right when it was a new industry. You're telling us what prompted you to do it, but why did you start your own business? Well, there was no family office industry in the year 2000 like there is today. There were a few incredible, large, long-established family offices. So. After J.P. Morgan, I had a series of corporate jobs. I worked at Credit Suisse as a managing director. I had a time at Citibank, at Morgan Stanley. All of them were very interesting. But when the internet happened, I really saw that something was going to change and that the way we were doing financial services was going to radically change. I saw this because I was actually working at that time for Morgan Stanley. We were putting together the first online services and the first what we call back in those days, a financial portal for the ultra wealthy clients of Morgan Stanley. And I saw it. I said, this is going to change everything. It's hard for us to remember that wasn't that long ago. 2000 is not that far back. And you could suddenly collaborate online. You could suddenly have remote systems to do all of your back office accounting. And previously to joining Morgan Stanley, I had worked for the Rockefeller family office. I actually was hired to be a portfolio manager there. And I ended up managing over a billion dollars, which was incredible, and had my first experiences with social impact investing, which was also amazing, working with two incredible women, Joyce Habusha and Partlip, who still to this day are very involved with social impact investing in the late 90s. And their family office, for example, which was primarily in those days for the Rockefeller family and then a few other select additional billionaire families, I would say three quarters of the staff back in those days were back office folks who were doing accounting, who were measuring performance. And remember, there just wasn't the computing power that we have today. So when you wanted to have a family office, say before 2000, before the internet, you needed a building like 30 Rock and you needed a couple hundred people. I mean, in those days, I believe we had 200 family members, various clients, and then 200 staff. You needed a massive amount of human beings to actually have a family office. When the internet hit, when the dot-com boom happened, and when we began to realize how we could aggregate, and I really moved from investing into the internet and into online services because I really could see how this was going to change the world. I got offered this incredible job. I left the family. I'm still very close to them, thank God, and said, look, this is just the world changing and I want to be a part of it. And they were very understanding. And so this whole experience of Morgan Stanley made me see where it could go. Now, it's very interesting. I don't know if you've seen the documentary, Esther, for General Magic, where the whole team of General Magic envisioned the smartphone about 20 years before they could actually build it. So about in 2000, we were actually envisioning consolidated reporting of all your assets that were held at different brokers or different places in one system. So you could have true time-weighted consolidated reporting of all your assets 
but it didn't exist. We were trying to build it back then. That's when it first got started. And I could really see how a family would gain tremendous independence if they could purchase this consolidated reporting service. They could have their assets all over the place, but instead of having 200 people at a back office doing calculations to figure out what the reporting could be, they could just hire a service and it would be much cheaper and that service could have many clients so it could be more efficient. So that was all just getting started back then. And because nothing existed, I just saw the vision. I said, you know what? We'll be able to have all sorts of external experts all over the world collaborating together using this new internet technology on behalf of the families. And it really was a brand new idea. And so my first website, I called my business a virtual family office because I could just see that that's where the whole thing was going. So I decided to start my own business, frankly, because it didn't exist. And secondly, because I had always had this entrepreneurial impulse and I always wanted to have my own company. And at that point I was 38 years old. And I said to myself, it's either now or never, you know, you've had all this experience, you have all these great contacts. You've really learned from the best in the business, JP Morgan, Solomon Brothers, Credit Suisse, Citibank, the Rockefeller family. I mean, you had the most incredible mentors. Now it's time to take what you've learned and kick it off to the next level as an independent person. Because I always loved serving the clients. And also in every big organization, and I'm sure that you face this in the UN, there are many competing priorities. And it's hard to move things forward because everybody's got their own set of priorities and half of the life is negotiating priorities and trading favors to get anything done. That's the world of government and big organization. And I wanted a small, nimble organization that could just get it done and show people what it could be. And so I was able to create it. In fact, I launched my business in February, 2001. Now we all know, unfortunately, what happened in the year 2001, which was unfortunately September 9-11. In fact, I would have been at Morgan Stanley at that time if I hadn't left my job to start my own business. And that department had moved to the World Trade Center. So I would have been in that building. And very sadly, I worked with this wonderful man who was the head of security at Morgan Stanley and he was the only person killed in the firm because he kept going back in that building to make sure everybody was safe and get them out. He was a true saint and dearly loved. And I was very honored to have met him and worked with him. So it's funny how things work, but business in the United States just sort of died. Even though I started off with the bang and had some interest, suddenly the world was frozen here, but the world was not frozen in the rest of the world. And in fact, I was asked by a friend who had worked with me at Rockefeller to fill in for her at a conference in Milan because she could not travel. She was stuck in a snowstorm of all things. Could I go to Milan and make her speech about family offices? So I did, got up on stage there, made her speech. And sure enough, the fellow walked up to me and said, will you make one of those family offices for my family? We just sold a bank. And so I had never done the consulting and to make a family office, but I said, sure, why not? Let me do it. And so he hired me and I got to spend a wonderful period of time in Milan putting together a family office for him. And then I'd, same thing happened. I spoke in Paris and I was asked to work on a project in Paris. I went to Bahrain and I worked on a project in Bahrain. I went to Singapore. So I spent a number of years working all over the world with these amazing global families at the very beginning of the family office industry. So it was fantastic. I absolutely loved it. And I imagine that quite a lot of this particular business of serving very high net worth families is personal relationships. So please tell us about how you were able to build relationships that both helped you launch a business in this new field, but also helped you keep and then earn the trust of these families. Well, I agree with you, Esther. I would say 
relationship is the only important thing in some ways. You never get in the room with the leading families on the planet if you're not competent enough. But for them to want to actually open up to you and tell you their personal family challenges in addition to their financial challenges of their personal finances, which as you know, in the rest of the world are extremely private compared to how people are in the United States. That's a big level of trust that you better be able to earn. And frankly, most of these people I had either met through the conference circuit and speaking, because in those early days, that was the only place to get information. So families themselves would come to these conferences around the world. We'd speak, I'd try to help them. We'd get to know each other. And because I was there year after year after year on the ground, I was in their country repeatedly, not just one and done. I think that helped people to build up trust. And then I was very honored because my clients always offered to reference for me. I always provided other families of comparable stature who could speak to them. So that helped build the trust, I think. And then I just think that you really have to decide who you are in this world. And I always tell people that one thing you have that no one will ever take away from you for good or for ill is your reputation. In fact, there's a great saying that Shakespeare has. He has the character Iago say this in the play Othello. And he says, good name and man or woman, my Lord, is the infinite jewel of their souls. Who steals my purse, steals trash. T'was mine, tis his, and has been slaves to thousands. But he that robs me of my good name robs me of what enriches him not and makes me poor indeed. And I remember reading that in high school, again, with my wonderful public high school, and taking that to heart. Always remember every conversation, every time you've helped somebody, just help them with whatever they need or make a contact for them. That is sowing the seeds of a good deed that hopefully is building you as a trusted person. Your word has to be your bond. You have to stand behind who you are as a human being, first and foremost. That's how I started, and that's how I hope to continue for the rest of my career. It's very important that we all remember that. Don't betray people. The world is extremely small. And I'll tell you, at the highest levels of the billionaire families, the sovereign wealth funds, and the family offices, the world is even smaller. It's a tiny world. We all know each other. We can pick up the phone and call each other all over the planet. We help each other. There's a circle of trust there that is very positive. And there's all these funny conspiracy theories about the nefarious workings of, you know, the top of the planet, but that's not been my experience. In fact, I experience people who work at the top of the planet as being very service-oriented and wanting to help their communities or their countries or their families, and that they seek to gain knowledge and make partnership with others who also want to help. That's been my experience. That's great to hear, Carol. And of course, I think for our young listeners starting out in their careers, it's also excellent advice from somebody who has been successful in building her own business, the importance of integrity and that reputation. And of course, we always love when people quote Shakespeare on the podcast. So Carol, we at UNCDF spend a lot of our time, most of our time, thinking about the poor. But of course, families at every income level face challenges. What are some of the biggest challenges or issues wealthy families are dealing with at the moment? Wealthy families are very much like middle-class families or poor families in the sense that what do we all care about the most? Our children. It's their children that they think about the most. I was just talking with another friend about this today. The amount of change, when I think about the fact that I had a princess phone, there was no cell phone. I typed my senior thesis at Bryn Mawr to where we are today and how the world has changed, how social mores have changed, how expectations have changed. 
it's been an enormous amount of change. So you have parents that are my age or even 10, 20 years younger than me relating to young people who grew up on the internet, on a tablet from the time they were two years old. And there's this massive gap between how our brains work and literally how their brains are wired by the internet and by being on social media and having global friends of all types from the time they were very young. So there's this desire to relate to children. And most children, this is well known, are very socially oriented. They want to save the planet. They're extremely worried that their grandkids won't have a planet. They're very worried about climate change. They don't believe that it's false. They know it's true. They're terribly worried about the animals. They're terribly worried about social injustice. They're terribly worried about gay rights, about women's rights, about rights of people with different color skins, for heaven's sakes. And they are often related to parents who grew up in a traditional society, in a traditional culture. Maybe their family made their money with a chemical company or burning down the rainforest in Brazil or polluting a river in China or in the United States, you know, cutting down redwood forests. Who knows? Often these children feel very guilty about what their family has done. And they see the world through this very advanced lens of what the world could be. And the parents are looked at as part of the problem not part of the solution. Meanwhile, the parents who love their children want to be part of the solution, but they're also worried and they don't necessarily understand this new world that's being created in front of their eyes. So there's this big disconnect between a lot of the wealthy parents and all the burdens they carry running these big companies. Perhaps they're in a country with a lot of political pressures, trying to figure out how to deal with their government, trying to have international business, trying not to pollute, having a lot of rules and regulations they're trying to follow in their countries now. And then these kids who are like, my mom and dad are just part of the problem. I remember I lectured at Singapore and this fellow said to me, I, you see that river out there in Singapore? You see all those big boats? I scrape all the barnacles off the bottom of those boats. I said, wow, that must be a great business. He said, yeah, but my daughter wants to be a graphic designer and my son wants to be a DJ and they don't want anything to do with my company and I don't know how to talk to them and they don't want to talk to me. And that was maybe 10 years ago, I was having that conversation. I would say it's probably only accelerated, become more extreme with the pandemic, with what people have lived through in the last year. So the desire to connect with their children and figure out how am I going to take this thing that I created, this big company that I maybe am the first generation to create and give this to my kids and let them take it to the next level. How am I going to reconcile my priorities and values with what the kids are interested in? How do we bring, keep the family together? Because it's a one-man statistic that most families fall apart in two or three generations, max four, the family's back to where they started. They lost all their money. And I've seen it happen over and over again. So people that are in their 50s, 60s and older who are ready to pass on their company to their kids or their grandkids are very worried. How do I do it? And how do I get the kids to be interested in this? I'm sorry, but it's more than a, a TikTok to learn about our company and how it works. And so there's this big generational gap that people are struggling with. That's one of the biggest things. The second thing that they're worried about is really all the economic uncertainty, certainly what happened with the pandemic. Some companies did extremely well. There were technology oriented. Some got killed like hotel and airline companies. So they're reassessing, what do I do in this new world? How do I reorganize my businesses to succeed? And what are we going to do to prepare for the next pandemic? Because the general consensus is now this is not the last pandemic that we're going to have. So I work a lot with the families and family offices to prepare them to strengthen their operations and strengthen their ability to forecast and see what's coming at them. 
how is the world changing and how should they react? Because the quicker you have information and you look it straight in the eye, the quicker you can react and plan and hopefully be successful to ride through the next crisis. The one thing we know about this planet, there's always going to be another crisis. Maybe we'll solve one crisis and we got a vaccine for this pandemic, but not everybody wants to take it. And what if it mutates into something that will not resist the vaccine? What are we going to do? We didn't have enough oxygen. The just-in-time supply chains that were popular in the 80s really hurt the planet because nobody could ride through a time that suddenly we couldn't connect constantly. So there's a lot of rethinking going on, reorienting about how am I going to move forward from this point with the business that I've created? And then very much so, a lot of them are very concerned. They're waking up now to the fact that this climate change issue is very real. Poverty, immigration, floods of human beings moving from one country to another as their own country burns to the ground. This is really a destabilized time and how can they get involved to make it better? And this is where they often reconnect with the children who are very concerned about that as well, perhaps have some broad ideas, but don't necessarily know how to turn them into something real to make them practical. So the older folks can really help these younger folks figure out how to actually affect real change on the planet. Thank you, Carol. So one of the things that you've done in your career, besides giving all of this very wise guidance to your clients, is write a book specifically about women in finance. Please tell us about that. Oh, yes. I'm very proud of this book. It's called The Seven Pearls of Financial Wisdom, A Woman's Guide to Enjoying Wealth and Power. And it was written by myself and a wonderful financial journalist named Camilla Webster, who's actually now a wonderful fine artist. We met because I was named a rising star in wealth management. And then I was asked to be part of the Forbes Intelligent Investing Team. Camilla worked at Forbes and was interviewing me for my very first on-air interview, as a matter of fact in 2011. And we went and had coffee and she said, we should write a book together to help women with finance because we realized so many things were changing back then. Again, we have to reel our mind back to over 10 years ago and that women had a lot more financial power than they were using. They didn't really know how to actually use this new power and opportunity that they had. And so we decided to write a book and look at the seven areas where finance was affecting a woman's life. And we actually decided to interview over 60 female financial experts talking about these different areas. For example, motherhood, romance and finance, crisis and loss, power building, wealth building, all these different areas where we saw that women were affected by money and how could they do it better. And we made the point of only using female financial experts because we wanted to show women, look at all the things we women are doing. There was a general sense among women and girls that I'm just not good at numbers. I'm just not good at money. There's just this feeling in the air, just like girls say, I'm not good at math. So if I'm not good at math, I'm probably not good at finance. All of that is hooey. And in fact, in my book, we actually debunk all those myths. Because if you look at the last financial crisis, which happened right before we wrote the book, which was published by St. Martin's Press, women hedge fund managers, for example, had half the losses and twice the returns than the men did. Female mutual fund managers had much better long-term performance. Women were the first ones getting into social impact investing. Saw the vision a lot before men did. So part of that book was really to encourage women to go ahead and really embrace the power that they had. Use their intuition, the ability to think long-term, the ability to think in a lateral manner and think about how money affects all areas of their family, for example. If you talk to a guy about his portfolio, the last question is like, what's the standard deviation? How much did it return? 
And how is it compared to everybody else's portfolio? Is mine bigger than the others? You know, is mine better than the others? When you talk to a woman, she'll often say, how is this going to affect our family? How is this going to help us build for retirement? How is the risk being managed in tough markets in this portfolio? So they ask much more connected and holistic questions in the context of their life. Whereas guys, I always say women see the field and guys see the object. Now you need both. You need to see the field and the object, but it is valuable to see the object and the field both. And it is valuable to see the field. It brings a very important perspective when you're analyzing finance. So that's why we were very proud to bring that out very early. When we'd go on a book tour, women would come up to us with little yellow stickies and all the pages of our books and go, oh my God, I wish I had this book 20 years ago. So it was a wonderful trip and a wonderful adventure to write this book with a fellow female author who was fantastic and to really encourage women. And that book is still great today. You can still get it on Amazon. There's a lot of timeless advice in there from some very smart people. For example, we interviewed the late Doris Buffett, Warren Buffett's sister, on what was it like to be a good philanthropist? How do you figure out who we give money to? That interview is valuable today as it was back then. So we were very lucky. We interviewed wonderful Barbara Taylor Bradford, a shout out to a wonderful, incredible author, and her husband, Bob, about how to work together as collaborating partners. They built her into a superstar international author. And it was really because Bob was the genius making movies based on her books long before anybody was doing that. Long before the internet existed, he was doing that. And so they were a visionary couple that worked together and had a very long and loving marriage and were dear friends of mine for many, many years. Started out as my clients back in JP Morgan and became friends. Fantastic. Well, we love that there is such an overwhelming outpouring now of resources about women and managing their money. But your book really came out 10 years ago or more, right? So it was one of the first. And as we see that baby boomers are passing on and their wives and children are inheriting something like $30 trillion of wealth over the next 20 and 30 years, one of the first steps that women anecdotally take when their husband passes on is they fire their financial advisor and they find someone who is actually going to look them in the eye and talk to them about their money instead of addressing their husband. So I think it's very prescient that you were talking about the need for women to take control of their finances and all of the responsibility and opportunity that brings. Carol, we're very excited that you were invited by UNCDF's Executive Secretary Preeti Sinha to join her new advisory council, which is comprised of financial experts from across the development and finance worlds to give her high-level guidance on the direction of UNCDF. What, in your opinion, is the current appetite for sustainability issues among family offices and your clients? First of all, I have to say that I am beyond honored to have been asked to be part of the Advisory Council for UNCDF. I am excited, thrilled, and honored. I have loved the UN my entire life. As I said, I did model UN in high school. It's the first time I learned about it. And I've always loved the vision of the UN, of the world coming together to solve the joint problems that we all face being on the planet together as one people of this earth. And anything I can do to support that vision, I'm very happy to do. Very honored and very happy. And I would say that the appetite for sustainable investing and for helping is higher than it's ever been in my lifetime. I think this horrible pandemic that we've just lived through, climate change devastating the world, the unrest around the world, it's impossible to ignore these days. It's very hard to be a climate denier in these days, in my opinion. And 
the fact that the world came together and created the UN Sustainable Development Goals was so impressive. The Millennium Development Goals had such great success. And then to create even a bigger, more vicious platform and the way that people are embracing this platform all around the world has definitely been noticed by the families. And I think that there is a sense that the UN knows what it's doing, that the UN is a useful partner for families and sovereign wealth funds, I think much more today, perhaps than ever before, because the success of the Millennial Development Goals and the progress of the Sustainable Development Goals, the proof is in the pudding. It's right there. Countries really are getting on board and things are really happening that are extremely positive. So I think that there's much more interest. As I said, younger family members are really driving this. Justin Rockefeller, for example, went on the board of the Rockefeller Brothers Fund as one of the youngest board members to their family foundation, got them to be completely out of carbon. You may recall what oil was $150 a barrel. Was that not a fantastic investment decision? But it was made by a millennial family member driving the family to make a change, the family that created Standard Oil. So there you are. There are younger family members that are absolutely open to wiping the slate clean and starting over something, leapfrogging into a future that will be much better for everybody. So I think the time is now, and I am thrilled that I can be part of this new effort to bring together the big families around the globe, the sovereign wealth funds who are very devoted to helping the planet, and the United Nations and UNCDF that has all these fantastic ideas and projects and ways to get families involved in the parts of the world that really need the most help, which will benefit everybody because, again, we're all on one planet together. Thank you, Carol. Well, we really appreciate the fact that you would bring your expertise, your experience, your decades of working with complex problems and high net worth families to join what was really envisioned as a partnership of different stakeholders and actors all working together to achieve the Sustainable Development Goals. So we'll look forward to working with you and your clients going forward. Thank you so much for being with us today, Carol. Thank you, Esther. And thank you to our audience for tuning into UNCDF's podcast, Capital Musings. Once again, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, and our website, www.uncdf.org.